everyone to cream corn the universe i'm colin and today i am joined with pam of between two worlds both the blog and facebook group uh who is uh, probably the biggest albert fan i've ever come across and ever will come across i think she has a lot of great insight i hope you enjoy today's episode oh hi my name is pam terjack i'm from the um, twin peaks between two worlds group uh i also work as a librarian um as well as my professional life uh I, first, let me start off with how I became a Twin Peaks fan and how I became an Albert fan specifically. I had, back in 2009, and I, you probably had heard this somewhere else if you had read the Twin Peaks in Between Two Worlds blog, uh, I had written an article about this that my um, my favorite, one of my favorite TV shows as a teenager was Charmed. And I had heard that one of the women on Charmed was on a quirky TV show before she became on Charmed. And it was Holly Marie Combs, and the show was Picket Fences. And I saw Twin Peaks, got it confused with Picket Fences. I started watching Twin Peaks instead, never picked up Picket Fences. Now, this was originally in 2009 when I first started watching Twin Peaks. And I had never really noticed Albert at first because I was too caught up with trying to do the mystery of the whole thing, trying to keep up with what the show was talking about. The themes and the actual plot lines and who was who and what was what and the channel that i had watched it on dropped it like years before little did i know that it was probably because david and mark had bought the rights back so they could start getting the scenes together for them for the entire mystery dvd release probably getting the stuff together for season three the things like that so i had uh i was missing Twin Peaks for a good two or three years of my life. And then when Twin Peaks came back for the season three, I started rewatching the series. And all of a sudden I started noticing this very gruff and cynical guy. And I said, who is that? And why isn't he in my life, in my real life? I, okay, I will mention that it's not just the fact that I'm an Albert fan. I'm actually have a crush on this man. He is, um just um, he has this great personality in a way you know he has a kindness to him in 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 in, in many ways even even back in fire walk with me he has a good good man he has kind eyes he is greatly intelligent which always attracts me about somebody and he has a sense of humor and let's face it even though miguel ferrer isn't the most handsome member of the cast you know there's the girls that love their bobbies and their and their coops but he is ruggedly handsome so and he has an urban sophistication that is just attractive to me so that is the reason why i got attracted to him as a person and as as a character and, and i just said oh wow and then i kind of became the albert expert in the Twin Peaks Between Two Worlds group. And even if you say something against Albert, I am going to correct you on it. <laughs> I've, actually, that's probably the best way that uh, anyone could have introduced Albert. Because uh, And one of the things that I feel like some fans, specifically with Albert, is that uh, I know there's some fans where 
they they think of Albert as just like this cold, crash, cynical guy right out of the gate. And then you get some fans who pick up well before a scene with Sheriff Truman, where he actually does have this heart of gold underneath his cynicism. Uh, did, was that something you picked up on early on, like when you saw his character? Or was that just someone that scene came up, you're like, oh, this makes sense? Um, the first two episodes within the first in the, in the first season, probably not because they were short and he was uh, he was short tempered with everybody because um, he was on a deadline and he was trying to get things done. He was trying to get that autopsy taken care of and he was running late. So it was obviously not going to be uh, a fun experience with for him to try to get this done in, in a short amount of time. And he's a perfectionist. But the thing when I know what how I noticed how kind he was is when he came back for the beginning of season two and season two, episode one, when he started to look over Cooper and said, you know, how did this happen to you? You know, how did you get shot? And being very concerned over his friend being shot. And then asking the next episode in coma, season two, episode two, when he says, how you doing? You know, this is not a man who was cold, horrible, cynical, nihilistic person. You do not ask your friends how they are doing if you are cold. You just, you're not. So that's how I kind of noticed how, I was noticing how good he was and how nice he was. And then chronologically speaking, even though we could fire walk with me way afterwards and we already had an established character with him. Yes, John Bernardi, I hear you. (laughs) We had a debate. John Mm -hmm. Bernardi and I had a debate. (laughs) Um, We we were, uh, I was saying, in Fire Walk with me, he's the only one that checks on Phil's physical condition. You know, um, Gordon's being the boss and trying to get Phil to give the information away. Um, Coop is just being Coop. You know, he's being this guy that is just so involved in the mysteries, not really caring, only concerned about his involvement in the mysteries. It's 10, 10 a.m. I'm, go- I'm worried about the stream I had. Then we have Albert, who is looking at um, at uh, Phil and saying, "Did he? Is he okay? Let Let me check on his physical condition. Let me make sure he's doing okay. Let me make sure he's fine." And the kind of person that is allowing Al- Cooper just to do his rambles and you know she's blonde, she's drug addicted, she's troubled, and well, you're talking about half the girls of America, but yet he's talking him through this. So mm-hmm. yes, I noticed this thing about him throughout the show but yeah the 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 moment was when he did the physical on cooper in season two episode one is when i started noticing how how his kindness was starting to show through Mm -hmm. now because uh one of my favorite scenes uh with albert was uh, of course like everyone loves the scene where he talks about how his concerns are global and how he loves sheriff truman but i think Mm -hmm. the scene and i think there's just some about the body language of uh, miguel ferrar and michael onkeen is that there was that scene like after that where it's like an episode or two later where they come and they give like this giant bear hug where it's like those two just came a long way from when they first saw in season one to now they're just like just friends and they just truly buried the hatchet yeah that was that was the um um oh what was her name uh that was the uh uh slays of bastards episode and and that was the um the episode that it was 
it was the, they they did progress as friends they did have this great friendship by this point and contrary to what some people believe it's not because they're in love with each other they've just become good friends and the fact that he comes to coop and says you know exchanging the dark student pie for the casual indifference of these muted earth tones is a form of fashion suicide but only it works is not the fact that he's giving himself away as not you know nothing that wrong with him being a gay man if, if it was but he's not you know but that proved it in season three by him having a date with constance please god why did that be constance i liked her <laughs> um but uh we'll get to season three a little later uh yeah. but uh season um but when he comes to that and he gives him the compliment it's like yeah, I need my friend is so worried about not being part of the FBI, and that suit is such part of him. This is, is his armor. I need to to um show that he's okay. It looks okay on him. He's fine. His his his, his path is different now. But also, a straight man can have a sense of fashion, mm-hmm. and I like the fact that yeah, that's his urbane sophistication sewing through. He is a city boy. He does have a tendency to know how to dress. You know, if anything, he'd be the kind. Uh, a person in a normal and in any other normal film that would be the, the noir hero he'd be the bogart type and bogart types always dressed to the knives when they were in like the Maltese falcon or the big sleeve or things mm-hmm. like that actually when i think of that scene of when albert's uh he kind of rags on the flannel look but said it looks good mm-hmm. on him this is coming mm-hmm. from more so a behind the scenes type of standpoint but I remember I heard Lynch just hated, just hated the fact that Cooper was wearing anything other than the FBI suit. So I always thought that was either Frost or even like Harley Payton, where they just want to have that one extra thing to put in there about how it does look good on him. And I actually mm-hmm. think the flannel, like, just putting the spotlight on Dale Cooper phone, actually looks fine on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, that's just my stance on on, the, on Albert's interaction with Cooper in that scene. Yeah. But the other one, and this kind of like, uh, I guess, slowly segues into season three, is that uh, in Fire Walk With Me, when Philip Jeffries does show up, uh, Albert, uh, he seems like, at least when you see him in the original series, there's this uh, sense that he he kind of scoffs at the fantastical aspects. Uh, but, uh, you know, in, in Fire Walk With Me, Philip irrefutably not only disappears, but he gets to the front desk that says he was never here. Uh, did you ever have that scene change, like change your? Do you change your stance on that scene from before season three and after season three? Um, because I I, I always felt like Twin Peaks was a supernatural thing as to begin with. I have this very interesting relationship with the supernatural in Twin Peaks because of I guess because of my faith background. You know, I do have to believe in angels. You know, my my faith background. I if, if I can mention it here, it um okay. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a practicing Roman Catholic, so I do have to believe in angels and God and the Trinity and all this and all this stuff. And so, but they, but it's also partially my decision on what I do with my life. That is, you know, this is one going to the uh, going off on another tangent. The Bob um, Leland balance is something that I always say is a both and because yes. I have to reject Satan and all his works because it's ultimately my choice if I go and sin or not. It's not Satan's fault. It's my fault. It's my fault, my fault, my previous fault. So with, so with, uh, 
with that scene, I always kind of felt like there was that paranormal involvement in Twin Peaks that was just, uh, that was there. So the fact that he was never there to begin, that he was never at the front desk, scenes that he was, he came in at the, in the, um, in the elevator. And it was just the supernatural being involved in Twin Peaks. That's, that was all that it, all that she wrote. And actually this one, I'm not sure, this kind of goes off a little bit away from Albert, but I think still on this really good topic is um, I know that with uh, all three seasons, there's definitely more of a focus on Eastern religion, uh, more specifically through the lens of Cooper and uh, a lot of Lynch's uh, TM experience. But uh, I, I wonder how that contrasts when you watch you know, all three seasons. They have Fire Walk With Me, which becomes more centric on, on angels, a little less removed from Eastern religion. Uh, how that fits in how you view like both I guess the lens of the mythos of Twin Peaks and also your views of the world well the thing is with Lynch and Frost they like not saying anything against them but they like to pretend that they are they they are TM theosophists all the way but they were both raised in a Lynch in a Christian home you know he was a Presbyterian according to be learned room to dream he was brought up in a in a Christian community and um, and and uh, Mark was brought up in Christian country. I'm not sure if if Warren and, and his wife were were anywhere near practicing any um, faith as as it is, but but he was brought up in a Christian country. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it was it's imbued in him this kind of thing. So yes, there's a lot of Eastern faith and Eastern practices in Twin Peaks, but my feeling is that. Yeah, but there's always going to be the seeping through of the Western religions involved in all of any story cycle that is written and made by a Western creator. Oh, I like that. Um, no, I think that uh, I think that pretty much covers anything in terms of the you know the I guess more religious views through the lens of Firewalk with Me and all three seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess uh, to kind of go back to Albert. One of the things I had written down is, um, what would you think was his funniest scene in pretty much anything, whether it's like you know any of the seasons, Firewalk with Me, or even like uh, even the final dossier. His funniest scene, oh, um, oh, I would have to say the scene in the morgue when he is berating Ben Horn. I <laughs> I just I just love that scene because. Ben Horn needed being take, taken down a peg or two, and we needed to see him starting to take down that peg or two. And Albert was just the person to do it. And that is that line that he says, I realized your position in the spirit community very much guarantees in sincerity and, and, you know, and going on and on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and stupidity is not a necessarily inherent trait. I said, yes, we needed this scene to happen. And he was the perfect one to do it. Oh, yeah. Now, I guess uh, in the case of Ben Horn, he's one of those characters where when you get to the uh, final stretch of season two, I at least found myself ruined for him when he wanted to be a good guy and like the fact that he stayed on that path in season three. But, uh, yeah, it's like when you think of where he's at in, like, you know, the, the, the first half of the original series and a lot of the implications of him in The Secret Diary, he's he definitely is someone that needs someone to be put in his place. Well, the thing is with when it comes to character arcs and Twin Peaks, my exposure to character arcs are kind of different because when I was first introduced to the show, my first epi- my first few episodes were the last few episodes of season two. So I was introduced to the show 
in like variations on relations, uh, wings of love, those episode that that episode arc. So I was uh, my first few episodes were so far in that I had already seen. I my first experience of Leo was in a coma. Was it was it was as was as William Wyndham Earl's um, lackey. I already had seen a Ben that had been reformed. So when I cycled back to rewatch the first few episodes, it was kind of like, oh, he was horrible. Oh, this person was a was an abuser. Okay, um, that left a different taste in my mouth than earlier because I had already had the the, the nice experiences with them in the later two ep- the later episodes of season two. So it was. It was a weird cycle back when I, because I, I watched the episodes when I, my first exposure totally out of order because of, of the channel it was on, had these weekend marathons with the show on it. So I was kind of cycling around weirdly. And that's the reason why I never really paid attention to Albert as a character that I might have a crush on because I was too busy trying to get the pieces into a puzzle because I was getting episodes all out of order. <laughs> and that's, and, and as everybody says, you, this is a show you do not watch out of order. And I was watching it out of order. <laughs> not in all fairness though, when you think of like fans before the gold box came out, that's, that was kind of half the excitement for lack of a better term was a, you didn't really have the pilot. Then you found this random episode or, and like maybe someone happened to have the pilot recorded, and that, that that was like from, I would say if you didn't watch it on ABC and Bravo in the '90s, it was just like anywhere, just kind of piece it together was half the fun for some fans. Yeah, I was three, four maybe when the first, when the when ABC was airing it the first time around in the early '90s, so I couldn't have watched it anyway. I yeah. wouldn't have been allowed. <laughs> I, I was like four months old when it premiered, so there was no way I could feasibly take any of that in. Uh, for the final dossier, did you read uh, Albert's... Uh, His autopsy report on... Yeah, the, uh, Leo, Leo Johnson's Jones. autopsy report. Because uh, yeah, uh, for me, it's like everything about that, except for one glaring issue... It feels totally like I, I just hear Miguel Ferrar's voice and the way yeah. he would say it. And it yeah, really I, shows that. Oh, sorry, you go on. I really kind of regret that uh, that wasn't written earlier on in this. I don't know when Mark Ross wrote that specific portion, mm-hmm. but it really would have been really nice if they would have somehow found a way to get his to, to for Miguel to have been able to record that portion. Because I don't know when they would have been able to, if they could have been able to, but that's like, Oh, it would have been so perfect to hear his voice doing that portion, even though I do hear it, even though when I'm reading it physically, um, um, I do have a tendency to um, listen to the final dossier as an audio because it's like audio so I can put it on and while I'm doing something in the background. Um, but uh, but when I'm actually physically reading it, it's like, yeah, I, I, I feel his voice in that one. And, it's, and it is actually very much like, yeah, the urban sophistication comes through the French restaurants, the fact that he has this extensive jazz collection, things like that. It just, it fits really, really nicely with the fact, with with his urban, urban sophistication character. I, I think that uh, both Mark Frost and Harley Payton, they said that, uh, that uh, writing for Albert was like the most fun and in some cases the easiest because they're just this sarcasm that they could just like right out of the gate just like one, one part after another. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and this is the part where this could either be nitpicking or some like random theorize on my end, but it's supposed to be an autopsy report from like 
late March, early April of 1989. And at some point here first, he prefaces like one of his sentences with trigger warning. And uh, I was like, that was probably not a thing that someone said in 89. Like if Albert said that season three would fit perfectly. So I kind of had this like, like theory of sorts where uh, I don't know if you've heard it where people talk about how Dale Cooper, my life, my tapes, where people now retroactively look at it where Diane doctored the tapes in some capacity. Uh, I always kind of took the idea that uh, Albert, he kind of knew Wyndham Earl did not go back to kill Leo, but like just assume that there was someone and that Diane just decided to doctor that to say that Wyndham Earl killed, uh, went back to kill Leo just to kind of cover Mr. C's tracks. I was, I, I also heard the counter Esperanto guys um, recently, because I've been re-listening to some of their episodes, um, talking about how they think that uh, Mr. C actually doctored that and the, um, in the secret history. I he, like that. He, yeah. he, he did. I think I, I, if I heard them correctly, because I was listening in the background while I was at work. So I was busy doing other stuff. But if I heard them correctly, I, they um, they were they that's uh, uh, that's what happened is that it was in the that that they were thinking that Mr. C did something magically with his bobbishness and his doppelgangerishness that that changed the final dossier and the um, secret history history around to make it seem weirder and change facts. Yeah, I, I think for me the thing that stands out though is that. Uh, with Albert, everything just feels so on point. But like the trigger warning part, I think I just had this thing in my head of like, oh, this is like modern day terminology, but in '89. So I'm not sure if it was like Mark Frost just kind of put it in there of you know just kind of like not really thinking about that. But I just kind of like you know, I but when, think in twin- that's the case. I'm thinking yeah. Mark Frost forgot because he is he is of a certain age and he's probably has forgotten when certain certain terms and things have entered the public parlance. So even though he's an amazing writer and he has he has the writerly sensibilities, there are times when you think, okay, maybe he's forgotten when something's entered into a parlance because, you know, that happens at a you know at a certain at a certain age. Oh yeah. No, but I, I think the, one of the things I think of like as time goes on is that even if something uh, is like a mistake or uh, or just something that seems off, I always seem to find a way to kind of like find a theory of source to kind of have it retroactively fit in because i don't know if you heard david bushman talk about it uh when he uh when he talked to mark frost when he was doing the murder on teal's pond he asked mm-hmm. um about how the hazel drew case how like she was found dead it happened to be between like two identical mountains and uh, he asked mark frost if that was like an, an inspiration for twin peaks and mark frost had no idea of that uh, so mm-hmm. the interesting part is that even just the most basic stuff that seems like it would fit in just retroactively fits in when you find out that like Lynch and or Frost didn't know something in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when that happens. Uh, the the, uh, the 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 thing with um like my theories with when it comes to something like the the final the uh, the secret history especially is I come from a from a from a historical perspective because I have my master's in history. And I have I come from a period of history when um, my 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 the periods that I study in history are things that where 
you only have like five letters and you've got to figure out a history from a history of a whole society from like five letters. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at this and saying, well, what's, what's actually a primary source here and what's actually a secondary source here. And the actual primary sources are actually few and far between. And you're looking at like something like the, the little thing that, um, that Cooper wrote on Josie, you know, besides her, besides her, um, her, uh, her Interpol report, everything else that is written about her is from Cooper's perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's all secondary, it's all the primary sources and information that he's called together that he is writing a secondary source on Josie about. And then in turn, the all the in all the, the analysis that Major Briggs is doing in the as the archivist is is also secondary source information because he's calling together all of this information into a secondary source report. The thing is with Major Briggs is he's not a tra trained historian. So he wouldn't know how to look at these sources, these primary sources and secondary sources that he's getting with an eye towards, can I trust this source or not? Am I, am I, am I, is this author have a bias? I mean, there is a whole list of questions that historians have to look at in order to analyze a primary source. And I don't think the major or Tam would be going through with those list of questions permanently in their skulls. So I kind of say, okay, take this, take these, um, the source with a grain of salt. And also you have, you're, you are calling together Major Briggs with all of these pieces of information with, um, with the secret history. And um, it's this, uh, it's, it, you have the primary sources there. You can do an interview with um, with Norma and Big Ed to see what really happened on. Oh, and, and maybe not Nadine because well, she has her own ideas about the world, the way the world works sometimes. But at least ask Ed and Norma what dates and thing, things happened instead of this, you know, this this secondary kind of kind of outsiders report written by Hawk. You know, Hawk may have not been the correct source. Maybe actually asking Ed and Norma what happened. You know that may have been a more appropriate use of your of your resources. Actually, that does make me think. Um, I guess I kind of listen to two things, but the first one is that um, I don't know if you read Conversations with Mark Frost, but uh, David Bushman was talking about that with him about how there's so many things in like specifically the secret history that are just wrong through the perspective of Major Briggs, and uh, you know, of course, Mark Frost left that as like clues of like the subjectivity of like can you trust this information. But he did talk about how that is something that happens in history more often than not, about how people just have these handful of sources. And uh, even if like there is the right sources available, if someone gets the wrong one, that's the one that can circulate like worldwide. And then that's what becomes largely believed. And uh, no, it's just kind of interesting how because uh, Mark Frost, of he's you know, he loves historical fiction. So he is way more of a way more knowledge on this than I do. But I just thought that was really interesting how. How that was like the crux of how he wrote uh, the secret history and the final dossier, because uh, he was very obvious about it with uh, Major Briggs, and uh, then we did the final dossier. He was a little more self Tammy, where I think her mistakes are uh, few and far between. But like I remember, I, I was reading the one about Donna Hayward recently, and uh, there's a part where it's like three years after the events of season two, they refer to her that she just turned eighteen. I was like, that doesn't sound right. Uh, 
But yeah, no, I think that's uh, one of the more interesting parts of raising more questions than answers for all this stuff is that, you know, there's no like official novelization. There's no, uh, you know, of like a what happened to these characters. It's all just like through the lens of what all these other characters have to say and just go by their word. But I guess, uh, oh, the other one is, uh, this is uh, str- coming back to Albert, is that uh, I was thinking of the scene in uh, season three, I believe it's part four, where uh, where uh, Albert and Gordon, they're talking about uh, about like everything with Philip Jeffries and uh, Mr. C, where, uh, where Albert basically admits that uh, basically he didn't realize at the time that he thought it was Dale Cooper, but it really wasn't. And it's kind of been this burden on him for all these years until he tells Gordon Cole, but there's that very explicit blue filter like throughout that whole scene. I kind of figured that you of all people would have like, you know, a stance on, you know, what that means through the lens of Albert and whether like the blue tint is, uh, is something pertained to his character or something to the series at large. Um, I don't have idea about the blue t- filter except that i think that they were probably having to cram this scene in during the daytime and they had to make it look like it was night so i you know and that was and and uh that was the best possible way that they could probably do it with the timing that they had because um if one of the things with miguel ferrer's shooting schedule is that he could only shoot during the weekends and um, he was uh, uh only a lot he was because He's, he's doing another series at the, at the time called NCIS LA. So he was only available to be able to shoot on Saturdays and Sundays. So get this scene in, they had to get the scene in. So um, so if they had to get it in during a daytime and they had to make it look like it was night, they had to make it look like it was night. And with David's interesting sensibilities, Mr. Realism, he wanted to make the nighttime look as real as possible because that's the way he rolls. So I'm guessing that was more of let's get the scene in and let's make it look uh, nighttime in post. But because it's David, let's make it look as weirdly nighttime in post. But when it comes to that scene, I always feel really sorry for him for Albert at the scene because he's such a perfectionist. He's so trust. He he, he trusts um, Cooper, and he wants Cooper to come back. I know, and I'm. Because also he's the only Blue Roser left, so it's like he wants his his friends back. He wants his uh, you know his 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 coworkers back in the fold, and and maybe this little incident might get Cooper back in the fold. And he made this big mistake, and his perfectionism is saying, "Oh God, I made this horrible mistake. Um, what am I going to do about it?" And he conceals it from, from Gordon for all these years because it is this horrible mistake that he feels like he, he is the most guilty for, it, but it's not he's guilty for it because Cooper basically tricked him. You know, it, it was it was the Mr. C, I mean not Mr. Cooper, but Mr. C basically tricked him into uh, into into giving this information away. And and I think Albert is the kind of person that is so guilt-ridden when it comes to his own personal standards and the fact that he led to it, that some of his, his actions led to the destruction of life and he is a pacifist in that way. Yeah, it, it was probably weighing on him very heavily for years. And I don't think there was more of a sense of the weird when it comes to that scene. It was just the fact that, like I said, they had to get, make it look like it was nighttime. And there was only two days a week when he could do this. <laughs> oh. 
I, I guess um, I, I guess I'll go with my stance on the scene and then go to a scene where Gordon Cole kept a secret then. But uh, I looked at it where the blue filter, because you no, know, it's the Blue Rose Task Force, even if it's just like two of them, because Tammy's yet to be part of it yet. But uh, I always thought the the blue filter, because I know that with Lynch, he's very deliberate with color. Uh, that blue is like a less is more type of thing. And uh, they, I, don't, I forgot if they say in that scene, but there's a part where Goran Cole says at some point uh, about a Blue Rose case that it doesn't get any bluer than this. So I always thought that there was something about Albert just confessing this like this thing that's just been weighing on him for 25 years pretty much. Uh, that like there was something pertaining to that, that this was like a scene that was like shifting the trajectory of where this case was going. And what I was going to mention about Goran Cole is that uh, near the end of season three, He's talking about how him, Major Briggs, and Dale Cooper basically had a contingency plan. And he tells Albert that, uh, you know, he kept it from him because, you know, in the case of Agent Desmond, Philip Jeffries, Dale Cooper, they all go missing. And uh, and and uh, Gordon Cole just won Albert by his side because, uh, you know, there's just not too many people. I don't think it's even like a for a job related thing. I think he just has that tremendous respect for Albert. Well, my views on that scene are very similar to what Kylie Carrere says. There, uh, in, she and I all agree on our take on this scene is that it's very convenient that uh, that Gordon gives this information just away at this moment and just kind of gives a, a draw. Uh, so she, we kind of feel that maybe Mr. C's listening in, or somebody is listening in, and and they and and Gordon knows he's being recorded. <laughs> So uh, there, there is a, a scene. There's a sense of of, of people being of listening in and and and, of, of, and somebody being up, um, spying on them from a distance. So she and I are agreement on that. Um, but uh, she, um, one of the things is I do think that he does ultimately respect Albert, and Albert is the one I think because Albert does bring the sense of realism to the to the Blue Rose Task Force and the show and in in. Um, and practicality because he makes the weird feel real i think because um because he was uh he's just practical he is level-headed enough to not freak out during certain things that are happening um he is the very much the one that can analyze the scene right after the something that happens i mean we are having in season two when in, during arbitrary law we have all three of the all the guys just kind of trying to figure out what's happening with Bob and and Leland and like how can I believe in this? And he's the one that comes up with maybe that's all that Bob is, the evil that man do. And I said, and I said I and it was like, okay, this he's the one that brings the first first real analysis of the scene to the to the people and to us as viewers, and it's a logical analysis. Actually, uh, on the topic of evil that men do, that does make me think um, that this is both a behind the scenes and something in, in, in relation to the mythos, is that when I met Ray Wise in Lexington, I asked him about the scene of Leland's death, uh, more so about a conversation he had with Michael Horse, because I know Michael Horse, he talked about how he just wanted out of that scene because there's mm-hmm. something about even a fictitious evil that just something you don't want to mess with. But when I mm-hmm. talked to Ray Wise, he actually said that... Um, while Michael Horst did want to opt out, that Miguel Ferrar was insistent. He explicitly brought up that Miguel Ferrar was insistent of staying for that scene, like regardless of the water pouring on them, like during shooting and like you know in between takes, because he just wanted to be there for like such a pivotal moment. 
And uh, you can tell that uh, Miguel Ferrar just has that, like, deep commitment to this character, uh, you know, regardless of, like, what role he really takes in that given scene. I think it's also maybe going back to his personal life, the fact that he is able to handle um, mental breakdowns because of his mother being, he, 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 his mother had very public mental breakdowns in her life. Um, you could read about it in her memoir, Girl Singer. Rosemary had drug addictions in her life. She had mental breakdowns in her life. And um, so I think he, and I think if, if, if she remembers correctly, she, um, she and Miguel and one of his sisters were present in the Ambassador Hotel on, on, the, on the day that Barathe was assassinated. So the fact that he was able to be present in the moment with when when RFK was being assassinated, I'm sure he could handle the presence of an of an even of a, just an imaginary evil when he's being present at one of the greatest evil events in our in American history. You know when when RFK was being assassinated. If Rosemary remembers events correctly, who knows if she does? And it was interesting that going back to Miguel's. Um, Miguel's formation of the role of the role was also interesting that he based it on a real person, um, because he based it on his good friend Gavin Becker, who is uh, who he said was very sarcastic, who is probably still sarcastic. I, I mean, if I remember correctly, Mr. Becker is still alive. Um, but so there is that sense of realism brought into the role because of the fact that he did base it on somebody that he knew personally. Oh, yeah. Actually, because um, I guess on that topic, um, this is shifting to on the air for a moment, but he does play a more characteristic version of Albert on that show. And I think it's a lot of fun, and it actually transfers quite well from Twin yeah. Peaks to, like, a sitcom, even if it wasn't yeah. a traditional sitcom at the time. I, I think um, his... Uh, if, Bud, Bud Waller, the character's name was? I haven't seen yep. this. I haven't that, watched I, I believe it's Bud Waller. It's been a while since I've watched it myself. Uh, uh, yeah, I haven't rewatched uh, on the air in so long. They, they, you know, it's hard to find. It's find hard to find scenes and episodes anymore. Um, but it, it's the same thing with with that character. You know, he starts off as horrible, sarcastic, vicious, uh, verbally vicious person. But in the end, we have him crying in certain scenes. We have him being sensitive in certain scenes. We see him going away from the villain's role, where the uh, where are the uh, where are the other two of the villains in the, uh, the, the in the series kind of remain villains, but he's the one that kind of stops being kind of a baddish guy and going forward into being a, a more um, a palatable, supportive person of the show in general of that of that on the air show general. Oh so, yeah. yeah. Now I guess uh, that also does shift back to Albert in some capacity because uh, mm -hmm. you know obviously he does have that softer heart you know specifically from mid season two onward. But I do like how a lot more just, like, scaled back he is at the times when it's needed in Season 3. Like, uh, actually, one of my favorite scenes, uh, where it's just, because what I mentioned earlier about how Albert, uh, like, what scenes make you laugh the most. Strange enough, the one that made me laugh the most is the one where he didn't say anything. It was the scene in Part 13 with a French woman who takes, like, two <laughs> yeah. minutes. And the things that yeah. I think people just thought the French woman just taking her time, I think they're focused on that. I was always focused on Albert's like internal screaming. Like this is like the one situation where he would never do an outburst. It would just be like, you know, inappropriate and unprofessional, just on an any conceivable level. And then it takes her two minutes to leave. 
and then uh, Gordon Cole has his turn-up joke about the woman whose, I believe, daughter who owned a turnip farm was abducted, and that she'll turn up eventually. And exactly. Miguel Ferrar just has this, like, I don't need this type of look on his face. And when, yeah. when Gordon Cole just has this oblivious smile, it's like, she didn't get it either. And it's like, of all the scenes on the rewatches, that one never fails to make me laugh out loud. I always like the scene, that scene because he, he's, you could tell he's getting frustrated because, he had, because um, Miguel Ferrer, oddly enough, I've seen enough of his, <clears throat> excuse me, um, seen enough of his work to have noticed some tells when he does scenes. And whenever his character gets frustrated, he rubs his scalp. And I said, I just noticed the scalp rub, and I said, "Oh, he's his character is starting to get frustrated." And um, but he doesn't want to give the way the fact that he's getting frustrated. So he was. Um, that is that's a scene that does make me laugh, but also makes me feel like, yeah, he's he's he doesn't want to blow up at his boss because of that, but also because he realizes his boss has this affection for women and i kind of had a theory and i don't remember if i if i um i think i posted it in a post in between two worlds uh some time ago it was about it was kind of basing the whole thing about shelly when shelly heard when he heard shelly for the first time in in the double r diner mm-hmm. and i kind of figured that gordon was never the kind of person that had um um, a lot of relationships before Shelly came into his life because he was always the boss. He's the one that's trying to keep the blue rose together. He's the, he's, he, you know, he, he has to do a lot of stuff to keep the cover-ups going. And I think there's a lot of times when he's with his sweeties and things like that, that his, uh, that's the women that he could hear. And I think, he, I think Albert's real, Albert has this, emotional intelligence to realize this is one of those girls that he can that that hear um that 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 gordon hear without tuning his his ear his his, uh his hearing aids let the boss have have his fun Mm -hmm. no let the boss have his fun i'll be sitting here frustrated because i want to get 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 my get get the the day over with and go an introvert because the man is an introvert for goodness sakes um but let but I just want to give my boss some time to say goodbye and and however long that takes, I'll be patient enough. <laughs> uh, actually, that does make me think of, this is, I think I've covered most of my points, but the last couple do pertain to season three. Uh, I guess the first one is that it seems like, and I'm not sure if this was really deliberate, but it kind of seemed like uh, Tammy was in a mentor role, in some cases less so to Goran Cole and more so to Albert. Like, mm-hmm. a, it seems like, that uh, now that uh, Albert and Gordon Cole are on the same page, he does trust, like, you know, mentoring another person on the Blue Rose Task Force. Because he, he has great scenes with Christabel when he's just talking about, you know, the alternate reality about the I am like the Blue Rose or how he mm-hmm. questions Tammy. And uh, yeah. I and I, it's, uh, I think part of it does come from where I feel like Lynch sees something in that person when he like mm-hmm. you know at least definitely when he when he films a scene but also when he writes it and there's some about Miguel Ferrar with those scenes with Tammy that just stand out to me because it feels like he's come a long way even just in the midst of just dealing with this case of like you know the missing head of Major Briggs mm-hmm. he 
it's he's gone come a long way, but he's still where he where he was when he was with Cooper in Firewalk with me and that scene in the Philadelphia offices, and they're just talking about who the next. Uh, there's there's a there's a there's a, there's a similarity between the two scenes about these two. The, um, who knows when Albert and or Coop was were first brought into the fold? You know who was first, who was second? You know what was Chet before them or after them? Who you know when this when did these this team gel and get everybody together on the same page? Um, so who knows who was first when? But um, there is there's almost feeling like albert was grounding cooper in those scenes um trying to make him realize let's let's think logically here and there is almost a almost a feeling of the same thing that's happening to cammy but in reverse let's let's unground her a bit because she's so grounded she's the one that she's she did she does she is seeing things that we are seeing but she doesn't understand why she's seeing it so let's unground her and let's unmoor her a bit because we need to we need to have her realize what the unreal looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, I guess because we were mentioning the Philadelphia office and this does tie into like the last part, at least the part that I have written down, is that uh, when when uh, Gordon Cole starts talking about the day when Philip Jeffries comes back, uh, you just kind of have this like not quite blank, but like a slightly blank, but almost like a begrudgingly remembering. When, when Albert says, I'm starting to remember. Um, I, again, this is what I was mentioned before about the Philip Jeffrey scene. If anything changed from that scene from before you watch season three and after. Because I feel like when Gordon Cole and Albert just collectively start to realize what should be this monumental part of like their mm-hmm. FBI career. Uh, it's, it feels like that definitely changes the dynamic for me, at least. Um. I see what you mean with that one. I was, I was, I was trying to think about what reference to season three you were talking about when we, when previously in the conversation, because I said, what, what do you, oh, that scene, that scene. I was getting kind of, I was getting kind of distracted by, you know, some of the other facts get revealed during that scene. I just think that it's also the lodge doing its kind of fogginess in general, because the fog just happens when the lodge gets involved. And yeah, I just think I think there I I think there's a general level of the 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 lodge just doesn't want people to remember that the lodge is involved at all. Um, the way it, the way it, the way it, it wipes. Um, because my theory about things uh, about what happens in part seventeen at the tail end is that Cooper really doesn't save Laura. He goes into this meditative state and pretends to save Laura so he could satisfy his own his own uh. uh guilt about not being the white knight to her but in turn that he um because he's becoming more lodge creature than fbi agent in this scene um he is exerting his influence to the people of twin peaks in order to make them forget that laura had ever died to make them less ill to make that that original sin of twin peaks disappear but in turn it turns awful for them because they get that fog that that general level of malaise that happens in in the final dossier, just 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 um just makes everyone feel very unmoored in Twin Peaks over a general because he just doesn't know what he's doing yet. He's not a, he's not a master magician yet. He's he's just learning the ropes of being a you know the lodge person. But at the same time, I think that the lodge does have a tendency to mask memories or change people's brains a little bit 
Um, probably one of the reasons why uh, Leland feels no guilt over the fact that he is his, is doing what he does to his daughter. Um, I do think that he's fully culpable for his, his, his crimes. And I do think that, um, but I always go back to the fact that he, he may, that the lodge people might twist his brain thinking that what I'm doing is not really that bad. But when he's dying, he says, oh my God, I did that. I, I, you know, I, I realize now that I have been doing horrible things and I am, I, you know, I, I should say I'm sorry because I am fully guilty of what I've been doing and I, I, I know I've been doing it badly. So, you know. Actually, um, I, I guess because uh, with uh, with the Leland stuff, because um, I think there's so many good points to bring up that, uh, you know, that would actually be like totally great for an episode just dedicated to Leland. But mm -hmm. yeah, no, I guess coming back to um, coming back to uh, the whole fog that the Black Lodge uh, uh, and the, that the lodges at large just kind of cast over. That does actually fit very perfectly in line with Tammy at the end of the final dossier where she talks about how she has to get away from Twin Peaks because she feels this thing that's taken over. She's kind of questioning her sanity at that point. Yeah. Well, I think with coming, going back to the 430, you know, how, how the, how the fireman says 430 um, and how Cooper and Diane have to cross over the 430 line. The 430 line, I think is the mile radius. My theory is the mile radius of of Cooper's influence over the fact that Laura is dead in the fourth within the four three zero is is alive. I'm sorry, has survived her mur her murder, um, has not even gotten murdered. Has is went missing uh, within the four three zero line, but outside of the four three zero line, she's dead. She's wrapped in plastic. Maddie's dead. Um, Leland's dead. Every, you know that 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 everything that happened in the original series is actually happening, but within that four three zero line, that's when the things that's when he's messed with people's memories. So that's know. why she has to get out of Twin Peaks is because she has to get out of that four three zero radius and and remember that Laura is dead, remember that Maddie is dead. You know. I actually never thought of that. That's actually really good because I never had a good explanation of four three zero in any capacity. I just kind of took it as like in part eighteen, where uh, Cooper he just think he just kind of he thinks he understands the fireman, and this is the closest that he has. Because uh, mm -hmm. in in part one, when he says I understand very confidently, I was like, good on you. I don't. Uh, and then when he gets I to part eighteen, he understands his influence. I don't think he fully understands his influence either. I think he's. I think he shouldn't have changed anything. I think he should have learned to live with his his guilt, his his uh, his his at his inability to do things because I think that's that's Coop's major problem and his uh, what I I consider Judy is not a person but uh, just everybody the the individual guilt of a person or their biggest problem in their lives is their duty and um, Cooper's biggest problem is the fact that he has to feel like he has to be the meddler in everybody's lives mm -hmm. and. In my one article in the Twin Peaks Between Two Worlds blog, my part 17 article is entitled Gail Cooper, How to Lose the Lodge Test Repeatedly and Influence People. Because he loses the Lodge Test in part in, in season two, episode 29, in episode 20, in the last episode of season two, by having, by getting scared, 
also, I think he goes through a lodge test when he's Dougie and he has to have everyone do everything for him because that's because he feels like he has to be in charge of his own life. He has this, um, uh, uh, um, a need to be always on top of things. Uh, he has control. He has the control freak nature. So being taken out of that control freak nature as Dougie is also important, but then he goes back to being a control freak in, in, in episode 16 by saying, I'm the FBI. And no, Cooper, you were supposed to learn how to be vulnerable. You were supposed to learn how to be, uh, how to let people help you, you know? You weren't supposed to be going on alone and see it, it when when um when when uh when uh when, when Harry wanted to come with you into the lodge. No, you needed to ha- learn to build your team, <laughs> and he doesn't. And that's my my major thing is that. And then he loses it again when he tries to when he pretends to change time. Now he loses it all the time because he keeps on going back to being control freak and control in. And so, you know, he has to let go of being control freak. He's not the one in charge of the universe. He's not the most important person in the universe. Let it go. <laughs> now, actually, again, like uh, like I was saying with Leland, um, that, that's also a lot of great conversation for a future Dale Cooper episode. Uh, and actually, a lot for me to think about as well. But I guess to give a pertain to Albert, was there anything left that you wanted to talk about or any final conclusions you want to talk about his character at large? Well, I did. Um, I do have, uh, I think it's rather sweet that they did give him a uh, relationship, but I kind of have interesting feelings towards, uh, that, towards that because I said, oh, it's nice to live vicariously toward, in, um, in, uh, in constant issues, but I sometimes feel like, oh, why couldn't it have been me <laughs> sometimes? But that's my best, the fresh showing, that's the fact that I, I, I'm like saying, oh, you, you yeah. Constance, you're great. I liked you, and I really liked you. I said you were you were getting to be one of my favorite characters from season three, and then you had to go and steal my van. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was kind of looked at it where in the case of Albert, because uh, I know that like there was uh, just like the structure of season three is obviously different than like any mm-hmm. shows that traditionally were on in 2017 onward. Is that I was kind of looked at it as that they had that one date together. And it was really like a one and done. Like, you know, they got along, but they just had careers that just could never feasibly overlap. I'm not sure if that yeah, kind of helps true. with the vicarious relationship, but that's what yeah. I got where I was like, oh, it's nice to see Albert have this like explicitly vulnerable side with someone and someone who yeah. he really clicks with. But I never got the sense that post season three, whether people think it's a dream or not, that he would yeah. feasibly go back to see her. That's true. That's very true. Although there was that scene in, in the previous episodes when they said episode nine, when she, when he walks into the, uh, the morgue and she's kind of gives him a little look and I said, don't you dare. <laughs> now I think it was the, uh, definitely cause there's the part where though, I forgot who it was, but the guys bring him up to speed and Albert just facetiously says, so what happens in season two? And then Constance, yeah. she has her part and it's like, Oh yeah, these two would, uh, would get along for a bit. Mm-hmm. But no, I think I've said everything about Albert. Um, but yeah, I think if we're finished up, I want to say thank you for coming on here because uh, this was a great conversation and uh, a lot of great stuff about how Albert isn't really just like a side character, but really adds a lot. And then Miguel Ferrar's performance uh, really adds even further to it, especially when you know how adamant he is behind the scenes. Yeah, and he is. And it, it, it's the fact that he is the kind of character that is... Um, very much uh 
you you think he's one way, but he, but if you really look closely, Albert is the 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 deepest one of the deeper characters of the show. Um, and I was talking to Maya uh, uh, um, Atkins on her program about Pride and Prejudice because that's when I was guesting on is it. it was talking about the Pride and Prejudice 1995 miniseries. I likened Albert to a Darcy. If you are familiar with with Pride and Prejudice, this, the miniseries or the books, the book, the book by Jane Austen, you know, Mr. Darcy starts off the series, this book or the miniseries or the movie adaptation, whatever film you, whatever way you come at so that 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 medium uh, of Pride and Prejudice, that he comes out as this horrible per, as this person that Elizabeth wants to avoid. They're arguing. He's not a nice person. Everybody's hate. Everybody hates it when he comes in. Like, oh God. Why is this Mr. Darcy? Why is this Mr. Darcy here? He's disagreeable, but then he reveals himself throughout the course of the book to be the sweetheart, mm-hmm. to be this the, the kindest character, the deepest character, the most um, the most vulnerable character because he has to protect everybody, and he protects everybody's feelings and their hearts. And I think that's I think Albert and Mr. Darcy are very similar that way when it comes to literary characters as well. I think that's probably the best way you could end. Uh, any given podcast dedicated to Albert, so I think that's probably the best way that we could end it. Um, thank you for you know coming on and record this for me. Oh, you're welcome, and I hope the the, the audio works out well. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, you never know until you actually get this up in Audacity. Even that, like a transfer to Zoom call, is just a thing in of itself. But thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. I it was my pleasure. Oh, thank you. Together, forever